0: Good to be with you, Living Hope Church. I'm Pastor Tim. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We're going to finish up our series in... Um, healthy relationships, but I want to let you know next week we're going to kick off a new summer series in the Gospel of Mark called Making Disciples. And so I hope that you'll follow along uh, with us this summer. Uh, We're not going to do an exhaustive uh, verse-by-verse list uh, uh, or or breakdown of of every chapter, but we're going to dive in next week to chapter one and look at how Jesus uh, made disciples and his call on our lives to make disciples disciples. So looking forward to that. But this morning we wrap up our sixth week in our series on healthy relationships. And we've been unpacking this idea that as humans we are created for a relationship. That ultimately that comes from the reality that God created us in his image. He is a, a relational God and we are meant to be in covenant relationship with him as, as a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They have flourished in relationship for all of eternity. But because of sin, tragically, our relationship with God has been severed, and and the collateral damage of that broken relationship is far-reaching. But we've reminded ourselves again and again that, that by God's grace, we are reconciled back to the Father. We are reconciled back into right relationship with our Creator. And the beauty is that once our, our relationship with God is restored, we now have the platform, the foundation to build, to rebuild every other horizontal relationship in the human sphere. And so the foundational relationship with God is, is the platform for, for the home, for neighbors, for church, for extended family, for co workers, for classmates. To have healthy relationships. However, even for us, even for those in right relationship with God, as Christians, relationships are hard, aren't they? Relationships still take energy, take effort. As with all things in life worth having, all things in life that are good and right, they take energy and effort and initiative. Healthy relationships, even for good godly Christians, don't just happen, right? And so we've taken the last six weeks to look at the Word of God, to uncover biblical principles for healthy relationships. Because in the midst of, of God's call in our lives, our own sins and the sins of those we love means that there's still a daily constant obstacle. Obstacles to stable, healthy, loving, God-honoring relationships. And so we've seen, we saw the first week, this idea that the very foundation of healthy relationships is to put on the new self, right? We have to take off our, our, our sinful identity and put on our new identity in Christ, We looked at Romans 12 and this idea of showing honor that is so, so crucial and I think so lost in so much of our modern society that we need to respect one another as image bearers. We looked at the idea in Philippians 2 of cultivating humility, thinking rightly about yourself, not puffing yourself up, but putting the interests of others above yourself. We talked about that in the midst of a a society and culture that is so critical of one another, that, is, that seems to thrive on tearing other people down, that we, as God's people, are called to bless others, to encourage others, to build others up. We looked last week at the idea of, of yes, there's disagreements. Disagreements and conflict are inevitable, but, but the question is, will that be healthy? Can we disagree in a way that's respectful and healthy? And so this morning, we're going to kind of do this summary wrap-up from Ephesians 5 and what it means to walk in love. Go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We looked at chapter 4 a few weeks ago, and we're going to be on page uh, 978 if you're using one of those hardback Bibles from the back. We're told multiple times in this passage, as you're going to hear in a moment as I read, we're told multiple times how to walk. Now, of course, this is a metaphor, right? God, in His Word, is giving us a metaphor. How we walk in this life is a metaphor for how you live life. How you live your life in light of who God is for you. And you're going to see this morning that we are told to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in wisdom, and, and finally to walk in submission. And don't be scared of that word, we'll unpack it and hopefully make some sense of it here this morning. So we're going to pick up in, in Ephesians 5 verse 1. Um, I'll eventually read the whole chapter, but I'm going to begin with verses 1 to 21 and um, I already prayed, and so I'm just going to dive in and, and read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ in God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving always, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. Amen. So walk in love. Walk in love. The very first chapter calls us to be imitators of God, to imitate God as beloved children first just sit on that for a moment if your faith is in Christ you're a child of God you're loved by God you are his dearly loved son or daughter that is who you are that is your your identity and comfort in that don't forget that remind yourself of that sit and receive every day the gracious abundant unfathomable love of your creator who calls you dearly loved child And and so as a child of God, our call is to imitate, to imitate our father. All children have an instinct to imitate their parents, right? They pick up our good habits and our bad habits. Many of us grew up wanting to be like our father, like our mother. We emulated them, right? My dad runs a concrete company. He has for 50 years. And so when second grade, when I made the poster about what I wanted to be when I grew up, the poster was me and my declaration that I was going to build a bridge across the ocean right cuz i somehow thought as a second grader that well if my dad does concrete i can build a concrete bridge from here to england and i haven't done it yet but right and so we're called imitate your heavenly father if i could say one thing to you if you could have only one takeaway from our series on fostering healthy relationships one key to happy healthy fulfilling relationships it would be this imitate god imitate God. Two weeks ago, we heard in, in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are being renewed, right? We've taken off the old self, we've put on the new self, and that is a new self that's created, what? After the likeness of God. He is forming us more and more into His image, and so the call now is to imitate Him, there's this book that's been so meaningful to me by J.D. Greer. It's simply called Gospel. And, and, and in it is, is what's called the Gospel Prayer. It's four short lines, and I pray it nearly every day. And, and line, line three says this, God, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. And I pray that, and I say, God, give me grace. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. As you have been kind and gracious, help me to be kind and gracious to others. As you have proven that you're slow to anger, help me to be slow to anger. As you have forgiven me, help me to forgive others. Help me to speak truth and imitate you as, as, as one who speaks truth in kindness and wisdom. As you have rescued me from sin, I'm not a savior, but help me to lead others to the one who can rescue them from sin. See, not, none of us can be God You are not God, and you cannot be God for anybody else, but you can be his son. You can be his daughter. You can imitate your father and represent God to those around you. And so we're called to be imitators, and and verse 2 says, as you do that, to walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved you. Jesus gave himself up for us. He gave us his life on the cross. We sing about it. It's the center of our faith that our Savior, the very Son of God, God Himself, fully God, fully man, came to earth, walked in perfection, walked in love, willingly climbed up on the cross, received your sins, your brokenness, everything that you've done in secret and in public, everything that your spouse knows about, and you pray that you die without your spouse ever finding out because you're so ashamed. God knows and God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, to be the substitute for your own sin. To receive the punishment, as it says here in this passage, the wrath that, that, that we rightly deserve. And then He rose from the dead. The Gospel is not just that you've been forgiven and that your old life is crucified, but that through the resurrection you are born again to a new life. A new identity as a loved son or daughter of God filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with that resurrection life, resurrection power, to walk as a new creation, renewed day by day, more and more into the image of God. That is our faith. And I call you, remind you again today, to place faith in Christ as Savior. The beginning and end of your life, every moment, personally, professionally, emotionally, as a parent, as a sibling, as as a worker, as as a citizen, begins with who you are in Christ. He gave Himself up for us. A sacrifice There was a fragrant offering, it says. This harkens back to the old covenant where sacrifices daily were made at the temple. And at the temple was also incense, was also burning as the animal sacrifices were made, sacrifices of worship and to atone for sin. There was this fragrant offering of incense made every day at the temple. It smelled good. Over 40 times in the book of Moses, it says that the offerings made to God on the the altar were a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The sacrifice of Jesus was a pleasing aroma to God. And listen, when you walk in love, when you walk in reflection of Christ, when you imitate Him, when you give yourselves to others as a sacrifice, not a sacrifice of death to atone for their sin, but we give ourselves to others as a sacrifice of life. We give our lives to others to love and to serve them. That too is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I wrote in the blog this week, hopefully at least a couple of you read it, in 2 Corinthians 5, We're reminded that God has purchased us to Himself. Why? So that we could no longer live for ourselves, but live for Him. Chapter 2 of that same letter reminds us that our lives lived for Christ as we proclaim the Gospel. We are the aroma of Christ to others. The smell of our lives spreads the knowledge of Christ everywhere that we go. Now let's be honest, some of us got some some spiritual B.O., right? Right? We're broken, we're we're faulted. We don't smell as much like Jesus as we should. We still smell like broken, fallen humans. And so we pray, God, clean up my B.O. Fill me with the Spirit of Christ. Help me to smell like Jesus to my children, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my loved ones. To be this pleasing aroma. To walk in love as Christ loved us. Our Savior Jesus called us to this in John 15. This was His commandment to you and I. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that for us and now he says, now you lay down your life for others and love as I have loved you. That is is the key. That is the the critical summary statement of our series. You want healthy relationships in any context, imitate God and, and love as you have been loved. The passage goes on to unpack not only walking in love and imitating God, but, but walking in the light as God is in the light. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do probably like a, a little four-minute overview of verses 3 to 14. And I had about a, an extra like two pages that I gutted out of my sermon last night, because otherwise we would have been here for another hour and a half. And so Um, If you want more exposition on these verses, email me, I'll send you my notes, Uh, maybe I'll write a blog about it, but here's the overview, right, we see in this section, we are called to walk in light, and that begins with a warning against sinful practices, right, in verses three and following, not to walk in the darkness. What's it like to live in the dark? Well, you can't see in the dark. If you're in the dark, you don't know where you're going. The darkness can't sustain life, there's no warmth, there's no growth in the dark. Life is in the light. John, in his letter, says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. We are with God, and so we are with Him in the light. But here's the beautiful thing. If you've come to Christ, you're not just with God in the light. It says that you actually now are light. And so verses 8 and 9 say, Walk as children of light, because now you are light in the Lord. And the fruit, the outworking of light, Results, it says, in all that is good, all that is right, all that is true comes from walking with God in the light. So we are called to walk in God's light. Why? Because that pleases Him, right? That honors God. But guess what? Walking in the light also brings you abundant life and it brings health and flourishing into your relationships. And so we're called in verses 11 and 12 don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness instead what instead of participating in them we're called to expose the darkness to uncover how unfruitful it is how dangerous it is how unfulfilling it is how destructive life in the darkness is apart from god we're called to expose that well how do you expose darkness i'll tell you how you don't expose darkness you're not going to expose any darkness or bring any light by gossiping about it and talking behind people's backs about the type of sin or or darkness that they're walking in. You're not going to expose any darkness by being judgmental of those who honestly are no better off than you would be without Christ unless Christ had shined His light into your heart. You don't expose darkness by slandering people or being critical of those caught in sin or railing in anger against the, the evils or the sins that you observe in the world. You expose spiritual darkness the same way you expose literal darkness. What do you do? You turn the light on. If there's a dark room... You're not going to do any good by pointing out how dark it is. You've got to light a candle, light a lamp. And that's what Jesus said. Let your light shine before others like a lamp sent out in the middle of a room to light it up. And so as we live in the light of God, as we speak the light, as we share the light, as we let the light of Christ shine in us and through us to others in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, guess what? We expose the darkness. We show the goodness and the beauty of life with God we imitate God we walk in truth and love as lights to the world I was at a graduation party yesterday and I saw a a dad that I hadn't talked to or seen for a couple of years and the first thing out of his eye said oh I saw you recently at such and such and he immediately began to be critical of this event that we were at oh yeah could you believe this and can you believe that and I said, wow, actually, I, I thought it was a really great event, and I was really thankful to God, and I felt blessed, and, and, and I hadn't even noticed half the negative, critical things that he was pointing out, right? And it wasn't about me, like, you know, jumping on this guy. It was about me just saying, actually, I was really thankful, and I, and, and I felt blessed, and I, and I observed this, and I was thankful I got to be there with my family, right? Shine your light. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. Look at verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Right? To live the Christian life means to walk a life of wisdom. We don't walk around as, as people that are undiscerning or unwise or ungodly, but as wise people. Verse 17 says, don't be foolish. Understand the will of God. Verse 16 says, make the best use of your time. Man, this, this is critical. We could spend a, a lot of time here. Make the best use of, use of the time you have on earth because the days are evil. Now listen, I, I can't say for sure But I think possibly, if the world around us wasn't evil, we could probably just do whatever we want, waste time, do what you wanted, right? But the world around us is evil, and so we have to make the best use of the time that we have, of the days that we have. Because guess what? Darkness and hopelessness do abound, and so we need to make the best use, be intentional, we need to live on purpose, we need to walk in love and walk in light, Another way to translate that from the original Greek, to make the best use of the time, would be to say, redeem the time. Every day that you have, seek to redeem it for God's purposes. Don't give in to the evil around you. Don't live passively and and just let the world float by you, but actively seek to redeem the brokenness around you. Seek to rescue the lost by the mercy of God. Seek to shine your light into the darkness around you. And so verse 18 says, to walk in wisdom means don't get drunk with wine. You say, well, that's that's super specific and practical. Yep, the Bible is often very specific and very practical. Don't get drunk with wine. Why? That leads to debauchery. Now, I had to look that word up, but it means to live a reckless, wasteful, wild life. And if you're somebody that's in the habit of, of constantly getting drunk, your life will be reckless and wasteful. Now look, the reality, the context that this scripture was written in, in the ancient Mediterranean world, wine was a staple drink. It was fermented to preserve it, to prevent it from turning to vinegar. But drinking wine and getting drunk with wine are two different things. Now for those of you that are looking for like a loophole and that are, 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 are trying to fine tune this verse, right? it also applies to getting drunk with any number of things, beer or Trulia or gin and tonic or whatever your preference may be, right? Don't get drunk with any alcoholic beverage. Why? Alcohol is dangerous. Christian, listen, alcohol is dangerous. It can be enjoyed. It can be enjoyed carefully and in moderation, but it can also quickly get out of control and become an unhealthy coping mechanism that you turn to for comfort. Your comfort should not be from a drink. Alcohol can quickly become a sinful dependence that you rely on to get you through a tough day or a tough week. It, become, it can become a harmful addiction that steals your life and destroys your relationships. And I've known numerous Christians, Christians who have seen the destruction of alcohol steal their lives. And this warning, from this warning of overindulgence with alcohol, I think we can be reminded and be called to account for the fact that any habit is dangerous. Any habit is dangerous if it overtakes you, if it distracts you, if it fills you, if it pulls your heart away from a heart that is fully dependent, that is fully dedicated on God. Whether that's alcohol or nicotine or caffeine or sugar or pornography or marijuana or wealth or entertainment or media or on and on and on and on. Any overindulgent, addictive pleasure or opportunity in the world can lead to this wasteful, unrestrained life. And so, it says don't get drunk, but what? You notice that? Look look back at that verse. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Listen, the opposite of, of consuming too much wine is not drinking no alcohol at all. The opposite of not getting drunk with wine is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? Don't be filled with wine. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Don't live a life under the influence of alcohol, but live a life under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God that has filled you that has filled you by faith. The Spirit of God lives in you. Live a a life under His influence. Don't live a life that is numbed by wine, but live a life that is empowered, full of feeling, full of sensitivity by the Holy Spirit. Don't live a life seeking comfort in worldly pleasure, but live a life seeking joy in the Spirit of God. See, to walk in wisdom, the wise life is is a life filled with the Holy Spirit. When you come to faith in Christ and you confess, I need help, I need a Savior, God, come rescue me. In that moment, you are immersed, you are baptized, the Bible says, in the Holy Spirit when you are born again. But now there's this ongoing command throughout the Christian life to be filled, to continually be filled. And this is, in in some sense, a passive activity, right? As you humble yourself, as you open up your heart, as you say, and as this phrase could be translated, is you let yourself be filled. God, come and fill me. I need your grace. I need your power every day. And so you seek Him. You rely on Him. You listen to Him. You walk in step with the Spirit, as Galatians says. Now, what does it look like to live the wise life, the Spirit-filled life? We're given three, again, very specific things, three very specific things that, that come out of a life filled with the Holy Spirit. And each of these have direct implications on our relationships, and the first one, verse 19, says is singing. Christians filled with the Holy Spirit are people who sing. And some of you are like, pass, right? You're like, I actually intentionally come late to church so that I can miss most of the singing. I'm just here for the talk, right? And, and I know who you are. I love you. But if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, we see examples of God's people singing. You read through the book of Psalms again and again and again. We're given instructions, sing to the Lord. Now for some of us, singing is an odd and, and yes, even uncomfortable activity if you're not musical. But singing is a sign of joy. It's a sign of celebration. It's an expectation for God's people. And, and actually, singing is not unique to Christians. Singing, I would argue, is part of the human experience, right? What do you do at a birthday party? You sing happy birthday to celebrate a friend. Some of you, driving in the car, you blast the radio, and you sing out with nobody else around. Why? Because it relieves stress. You go to a graduation, as I did recently, and people sing out their high school alma mater. Why? To show respect and gratitude for their school. We sing the national anthem to honor our country. You may go to a Taylor Swift concert, and you and all of your friends sing together. Why? Because to, it's a unifying, It right? It helps you feel connected and close to your friends around you. You go to an Orioles game, seventh inning stretch, what do you do? You sing, Thank God I'm a Country Boy, right? You're not a country boy, but you sing, Thank God you're a Country Boy anyway. Why? Because it's just fun, right? And Christians sing for all of these reasons for joy, for celebration, for honor, for unity. And the scripture points out at least two more unique reasons. Verse 19 says that when we sing, listen, we address one another. There's a horizontal impact when we sing together as Christians. And singing is meant to stir and encourage and teach and inspire and point one another to God. And so we sing over our children. We sing in our homes. We sing on Sunday mornings. We sing in our life groups. And maybe you're not actually singing harmonious notes, but you're taking spiritual songs and hymns and psalms and you're speaking those to other people. And so even when you don't feel like singing, please know it's not just for you. It encourages and blesses the people around you as well. And so I would say that we are called to sing, to be joyful, to have heartfelt songs that are reverent, that are expressions of praise and worship to our great God. And whether your voice is beautiful, or whether like me, you sound like a strangled duck, whether you sing really loud or quiet, Whether you like to sing or not, whether you're in the mood to sing or not, our great God always deserves it, right? And we see here that we're called to make melody in our hearts to God. And so yes, there's impact on the people around us, but we are making melody to God and offering praise and worship to a God who always is worthy of our song and our praise. The Spirit-filled life is one that sings, that encourages people, that offers up Worship to God, but in verse 20, it also says that the spirit-filled life is one of thanksgiving. We're called to give thanks all the time for everything that we have from God our Father. And we do so in the name of Jesus. To give thanks in the name of Jesus means that we're thanking God through Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the only mediator we have between God and man. Now, as I've said throughout this series, we live in a, in a world and in a culture that too often in, invades the church, that we love to be critical, to be negative, to tear people down. And so we read in Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, what? Keep your mouth shut and don't say anything. No, Ephesians 5, 4 says, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Instead of a critical negative word, be thankful. You say, well, I don't have anything to be thankful for. You haven't thought hard enough. Give yourself 30 seconds. I bet you come up with five things. I want to particularly say we live in a culture where it is somewhat in vogue in, in many secular places that to sort of practice the pastime of ripping on your spouse, right? To be negative, to complain about your spouse is often just a given, it's accepted. Can, can we do the exact opposite and speak words of gratitude and thanks for our husbands and wives? You say, but my marriage is difficult. I understand that. I'm not asking you to lie or be deceptive. I'm asking you to give thanks, And verse 21 says, not only is the Spirit-filled life one of singing and thanksgiving, but it's one of submission, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What's interesting is that verses 15 to 21 is actually one long sentence in the Greek. And so the call to submit is actually connected all the way back to that opening clause in verse 15. So it says something like this, look carefully then how you walk, be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another. To be wise, to be filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another. And yes, we're going to talk now about the S word. Right? And I, and I hope to show you from God's word that submission is a good, necessary, helpful, and beautiful concept of all healthy relationships. All healthy relationships. And so I gutted the section on walking light because I want to take some time now to, to talk about marriage. And it begins with this in verse 21. Actually, this is relevant to to all relationships it says submit to one another out of reverence for christ now another way to translate the word submit some of your versions might say be subject and so to be subject or to submit does not mean you turn your brain off it does not mean you lose your convictions it does not mean you let other people boss you around or step on you ephesians 5 and 6 is going to show us that submission occurs really in in two ways, two ways to look at submission. One is mutual submission. Mutual submission is based upon humility and respect. But there's also a concept of one-way submission, which is based upon someone's position. Okay, so let me articulate this for you. Look back at verse 21, right? Mutual submission, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. It's something that we are doing together in Christian community in the context of relationship. That we consider the other person more important than yourself in a friendship, in a marriage, in a connection in church. And so we seek to honor them, to serve them. We put effort into building them up, right? This is a very similar concept to what we heard in Philippians chapter 2. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so if I am not only looking to my own interests, it means that I'm submitting myself... Right, Out of respect to the interests of other people. And I not only do what I want, but I do what others want as a way to serve them. We saw this in Romans chapter 12. We're called to outdo one another in showing honor. And so sometimes to honor the other person means that you lovingly, with respect, out of reverence for Christ, you submit yourself and you honor them. Right? To honor is to lift someone up. To show them respect and reverence and care. And so submitting to one another means we consider others more important than ourselves. We honor them. We love them. And this is the call of every Christian. Call of every Christian. But again, there's also this idea, which we'll go on to unpack, of of what I would would call, and I couldn't think of a better way to describe it, but one-way submission, right, that is is founded upon someone else's position in relationship to you. That there are instances throughout every context of life where we are called as Christians to subordinate ourselves ourselves to others. And I think that subordination is what keeps families and churches and businesses and governments and society running and functioning, right? And every single one of us is called to submit to those in positions of authority or leadership over us. And that means you willingly look to someone else to lead you. You depend upon someone else to guide you. Submission is done with humility, out of respect and trust. So both mutual submission submitting to one another, and one-way submission, submitting to those who are in positions over you, is the call of every Christian. And both types of submission, any form of submission, I believe is a demonstration of love. And here's why. Because submission is a reflection of Christ. Listen, Christian. Submission is a keystone of the Christian life because in submitting, we reflect Jesus. You want to be like Jesus, right? Jesus was a man who showed us submission. He submitted himself to the Father's will. He emptied himself. He submitted himself even unto death, and both in obedience to his Father and to serve our own needs, he walked to the cross. Submission is key to healthy relationships because without submission, listen, without submission, most relationships quickly unravel into a power struggle. Anybody ever been in a relationship that was a power struggle? Day after day, moment after, every conversation, every interaction, every email felt like fight to see who could one-up and be in charge and be in control. See, the opposite of submission is selfish ambition, is rivalry, is puffing yourself up, is self-centeredness, is self-reliance, self, 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 self. Submission is God and then others. Why do we submit? What did verse 21 say? Out of reverence. To Christ, to revere Christ means to respect him, to stand in all of him, to worship him, to obey him. We submit to others out of reverence for Christ, not out of reverence to the other person. You don't have to. You don't have to revere the other person to submit to them. You have to revere, revere Jesus. Your submission to others demonstrates your submission to Christ. You say, why would I I want to follow that person or or look to that person or serve that person or honor that person or subject myself to that person? Because in so doing, you subject yourself to Jesus. And that is a beautiful, life-giving reality. And so, because we submit out of reverence to Christ, this means that in no context, in no context or in no situation where we are subjected, not in the family, not in the church, not in the workplace, not in the government, do we ever submit to someone calling us to sinful behavior. Because if we were to submit to somebody who was calling us to sinful behavior, we would no longer be in reverence to Christ, right? So we're not talking about unconditional submission. If we submit to others out of reverence to Christ, that means Jesus is always our supreme master. He is the only one who gets unqualified submission. Your obedience and looking to Christ is the only one who is unqualified. We subject ourselves to others only if and only when we can keep Jesus in the highest place as master. And so we subject ourselves to others when and only when Jesus stays in his rightful place as our master. Now, one of the things that we see here in this context... And, and I told you, I'm going I'm to spend some time here. I hope everybody's okay with that. One of the things that we see here in this context in Ephesians and in other places is that this idea of submission means different things in different contexts and in different relationships, right? And so chapter 5 is going to go on to talk about wives and husbands. Chapter 6 is going to talk about the relationship between children and parents, between bondservants and masters, and how this principle, this universal principle of submission is practiced can be very different in different contexts. Children are told to obey their parents. Servants are told to obey their masters. Wives are not told in this passage to obey in that same way, right? I submit. As Living Hope Church, you're like thinking, well, you get off easy, right? You're like the lead pastor of the church. I submit to the elder team. If you don't believe me, don't ask me, right? Because if you don't believe me, there's no point asking me. Go ask one of the other elders. Does Pastor Tim submit to the elder team? I hope and pray and believe that I do. I can think of numerous specific instances when I have. Um, we, we were at a meeting, it was our last month's meeting, and I walked in the meeting thinking this is clearly how do we need to proceed. Um, we, were, we were looking at a potential uh, responsibility and role change for one of our staff members and giving some increased responsibility. And I said, this is the title that we need, and the other elders disagreed. And they said, no, that title doesn't make sense. We should change her role to this title. And I thought, okay, well, that's what we're doing. Now, look, in some relationships, submission is voluntary, in others... Submission is compelled, right? So, so submission looks different for me with my elder team. They're my direct supervisors. But that's different than the type of submission, the type of mutual submission I may give to a friend when I'm at his house, right? When I go to Craig's house, it's Craig's house, Craig's rules, right? I submit to him as the head of the, that home. But what about the type of submission that you give to a police officer? That's different than the way that I, like, I don't look at a police officer the same way I look at Craig even when I'm in Craig's house right? It's also different than the type of submission I expect from my children, right? Submission looks differently, plays itself out differently in different contexts. In some instances, you, you submit because the person's in a, submission, a position of authority. In other instances, it's not authority so much as influence, right? And so there's sometimes voluntary authority, right? So when you go to a water park, the that, 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 16-year-old lifeguard really doesn't have any real authority over you, but when he tells you, despite your best attempt to argue that your 8-year-old daughter really should be allowed to ride on the inner tube with you down the slide, that that is the best way for you to have fun, that is the safest way for your daughter, if the rule is only one person on a tube at a time, guess what? You voluntarily submit to the authority of that 16-year-old lifeguard that probably only had 10 minutes of training, but you're doing that voluntarily, Right? But you look at something like our government. Submitting to the government is what I would call a compelled authority. It's, it's not really voluntary, right? They have the ability to compel me to submit to them if they so choose. Now, technically, I could, I could renounce my citizenship and move to Canada, but, but compelled to the extent that I don't want to leave the country, right? Now look, as I've said, submission, I believe, is key to any healthy relationship because without submission, as I've said, most relationships quickly unravel into a power struggle. Now I want to take some time, as I've said, to dig in, because I think this is critical, to dig into how this plays out in marriage. Because as we have been talking about for six weeks and our desire to be men and women of healthy relationships, marriages can be one of the hardest, right? I won't ask for a show of hands, but I... I'll just tell you, marriage is, is one of, if not my hardest relationship. Why? Because it's the relationship that I have the most time, the most energy, the most investment, the most commitment. It's the only relationship, you know, outside of hopefully my children that will be lifelong. And so we've said that our relationship with God is the foundation of every other healthy relationship, but for those of you that are married, your relationship with your spouse is paramount. It's like the springboard, right, that can launch you into health in other relationships. But as some of you are already bracing yourself for, the reality is that in the 21st century, the principle of submission can be a struggle, right? But it should be no more of a struggle than every other principle we've talked about in the context of this series. Just as we're called to honor others, to facilitate healthy relationships, to disagree respectfully, to walk in humility, to build others up, submission is also critical in marriage, we're called to walk in love, and that means to walk in submission. And there's unique application um, in marriage. Right? Look at, at verse 22. Verse 22 continues the thought of verse 21. It uses the same verb. It really could be read like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now first, let me just say this so that there would be no uh, uh, confusion. The Bible nowhere says women submit to men. Okay, this is a unique dynamic between a husband and his wife that is ultimately intended to reflect Christ and the church. And as beautiful and as a valuable relationship as marriage is, and as marriage is ultimately intended to give us this beautiful walking picture of Jesus and the church, singleness is a godly, honorable call. For the singles that are here today, some of you will remain single for your entire lives, and you will enjoy it and glorify God, and there may be seasons of challenge, but singleness is well as well is a beautiful calling where you can thrive without a husband or a wife. And so I'm going to talk in detail about husbands and wives, but you don't need a husband, you don't need a wife to thrive and honor God in this life. And so what we're going to do now is try to understand verse 21 in conjunction with verse 22. And it can be challenging, and interpretations differ. right? Verse 21 introduces what I've kind of laid out as what I would call this guiding principle of mutual submission. Submit to one another. Reciprocal submission. And some people interpret verse 21 to mean that even though that, that specific instructions and directions follow related to, to wives and children and servants, some would say that submission is always and only mutual, even in the context of marriage, right? This is what we would call the egalitarian position. Others interpret verse 21, submit to one another as a general principle, as a general principle And then verse 22 shows how the further concept of submission functions in the home in a a one-way perspective. This is what we would call the complementarian position. Now listen, egalitarians love Jesus, and many, many, many of them will be in heaven worshiping with us. We'll probably laugh about it one day, right? But here at Living Hope, the elders hold to what's called the complementarian position, which means husbands and wives are different, right? Different, different roles, equal in value, equal in worth, equal in status before God, but different in roles and functions, and we complement one another. So, so listen, even though we believe that what the Bible teaches here is that wives are called to submit to their husbands, we still need to ask this question. Okay, but you talked about in verse 21 this idea of mutual submission. So is there any concept of mutual submission between a husband and a wife? You, you following me? Do you understand the question? Okay, thank you, Nina, for nodding your head. Look, there's not a clear or definitive view on this, but my own view is that, yes, there is also mutual submission happening between a husband and a wife. Why? Husbands and wives are fellow Christians. They're equals as brothers and sisters. They are co-heirs with Christ. And so while in marriage there's a unique way that a, a wife is called to submit to her husband, this does not negate the general call to mutual submission, but it works in conjunction, Right? With mutual submission you can you can look at first corinthians 14 or excuse me 1 corinthians 7 where i believe the partnership and the mutual aspect of marriage is laid out where we read there that a wife and a husband have authority over one another's bodies and it's talking specifically there about the context of sex mutual submission and so while husbands and wives do submit to one another out of reverence to christ in marriage, they don't submit to one another in the same way because the husband is the head of the wife. And I'm just going to now read the rest of the chapter and and rather than try to make sense of it in my own words, right? And you'll see as I read beginning in verse 22, that ultimately, as I've said, this picture, this beautiful, at times, yes, challenging picture of a husband and wife is ultimately meant to show us and reflect what Christ has done for the church and how Christ has loved and served the church, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You you guys got a few more minutes in you? Yeah? Look, Scripture teaches here that husbands are called and entrusted with responsibility. And here's the responsibility that husbands have. To be the head of their wives and their families. Husbands serve as the head of their wives as Christ is the head of the church. That means, husbands, we need to love our wives as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. We love our wives as we love our own bodies. And so that means that we are called to lead the way. That means we're called to be first. Think, yeah. I'm first. Let me tell you what you're first in. Husbands, you're first to give, first to serve, first to sacrifice, first to deny yourself, first to confess your sins, first to ask for forgiveness, first to give forgiveness, first to put the needs of others above your own needs. That's what it means to be first in the context of your home. You lead the way in that. Now listen, because wives are called to submit to their husbands doesn't mean that husbands have the right to order them around or make all the decisions. A godly husband doesn't have the right to make every decision that he wants unilaterally. Instead, a husband has the responsibility to see that a wise, unified, unified decision is made, right? So a Christ-like husband has the responsibility to see that his family is built up built up according to Christ's kingdom, not built up according to your own kingdom. My kingdom would look very, very different at 14 Country Manor Lane, right? But that's not my job. My job is to build up my home according to Christ's kingdom. And so for me to be a godly, Christ-like leader and head of my home means that there are, time, there are times, in fact, many times, where for me to lead as Christ in my home means that I willingly submit my own interests, my own preferences, and even at times my own will to that of my wife. And this happened just this week, probably a three-day discussion, conversation, at times tension about a certain decision that we had to make, and I had to decide, am I going to do what I want, or am I going to give consideration to the desires of my wife? But even as I do so, I do so as the one who bears ultimate responsibility. And so husbands, if you want to know practically what this means, it means you pray for your wife. It means you protect your wife. You honor your wife. You cherish her as invaluable. You cherish her as invaluable. You listen to her as one who is wise. You treat her with gentleness, with respect, with care, with consideration. I, I remember one time I was, I was going through this with an engaged couple and when I was doing premarital counseling, and I asked their thoughts on this, and I was a little nervous because this was a woman with a master's degree, with a full-time career, right? She was, she was an intelligent, sharp, strong woman. And when I laid this out and I said, so what do you guys think? How are you feeling about this? She got excited. She said, I can't wait. (laughs) She said, it's going to be such a relief to be led. That was her heart, right? Not laying down her intellect or her will or, or, or her strength or to be run over, right? But to have a man lead her as Christ. So for wives, for wives to submit means that you look to your husband, You look to your husband and you honor him as as head to lead you, as the leader. That means you support him, you encourage him, you facilitate his role to lead as Christ. It means that as a strong, godly, intelligent, gifted, valuable, capable woman, and every woman in this room is that, it means that you use your power and you use your value to strengthen and support your husband. It means that you do all that you can do to make him better, more godly, more like Christ. Your disposition is to yield your preferences, and your place for him. You seek to build him up, to empower him, to equip him. In fact, listen, women, listen, wives. Your husband, cannot, your husband cannot be who he is called to be without you. The book of Genesis says that you are a helper fit for him. That means you have been specifically designed to complement his strengths and weaknesses because, listen, he needs your help. Husbands need a helper because we need help. Not just from anyone, but uniquely, for me, from my wife Karen. That's why we call this the complementarian view, because husbands and wives complement one another. Look, I, I know the, the clock is ticking. Let me read real quickly this, uh, this quote. This, this comes out of the, the Danvers Statement. Well, it comes from the Danvers Statement, written in 1988, this joint statement. And from that is this book called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Wow, you really can't see that graphic, can you? It's edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And let me just summarize what I've said um, in their words. Biblical headship is the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will, Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not her husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ. See, without the love, respect, and support of his wife, a man will either become passive or he will cower in the corner or he will become literally good for nothing and he will drift from God and and probably get sucked into sin. And, and let, me, let me just tell you this real quick because this literally happened last week. And as this woman is telling me this, I'm thinking this is going in the sermon, right? This woman not, not, doesn't go to our church. I'm, I'm speaking with this woman and she was telling me how for years her husband is passive. He wasn't active in his spiritual life. He didn't step up to lead in the home or serve in the home. And so the woman did what many, many good women have done is she stepped up. She stepped up to serve and to lead in her home, but she had been doing this for years and she said, I just got tired and I was worn down. Because she was seeking to fulfill a role that I don't believe God created her to fulfill. And so she began to tell her husband, look, I need you to take more responsibility. And she just said, she just said, I can't do it anymore. You need to be the spiritual leader. And do you know what happened, she told me? She says, he's starting to do it. She stepped down. She stepped aside. She submitted to him. She expressed her need to him. She empowered him. And now he is stepping up. He is stepping up to take responsibility. And she is refreshed, and there's a renewed sense of peace and joy in the home because he's doing what God created him to do. So wives, please pray for your husband. Counsel your husband. Advise him. Hold him accountable. Correct him when he's drifting away. Show him respect. Express gratitude. Empower him to be who God has created him to be. And husbands, love and serve your wives. Cherish them that they could be all that God has designed and created them to be. Men and women created uniquely. Husbands and wives uniquely designed with your role and your calling, with your wife, and with your husband. Not for anybody else, but for the woman God gave you. Not for anybody else, but for the man that God gave you. Walk in love. Amen? So the worst team's come, gonna come back out. Before we go, we're gonna sing this song because one, Christians are supposed to sing, and two, because we need Jesus' help, right? Won't you stand and pray with me? Oh God in heaven, some of us sit here, stand here now, feeling overwhelmed feeling worn down. And so I pray that you would wash over us with your love, that you would reassure us in our identity as your beloved sons and daughters. Regardless of how well we think we are or are not living out the calling to walk in love, I pray that we would be reassured today that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us more. There's nothing that we have done to make you love us less. Because in Christ you love us abundantly, immensely, eternally. And so we pray today, even as we close in song and prayer, that you would enable us and empower us to walk in love, to imitate you. To lay down our lives for others, to serve others, to put others first. Enable us to be men and women who walk in light, who walk in the light of Christ. Who let the goodness and grace of God shine into us and out through us, that we could be lights to a dark world. Help us to be men and women that walk in wisdom, not to live a foolish life, but to live a wise life filled with the Holy Spirit. And help us to be people who walk in submission, not arrogantly seeking to puff ourselves up or arise to the front of every conversation or every room, but to submit ourselves both in humility and and mutually, and to submit to those in authority and influence and leadership over us. And so God, now through this song, we run to you. We run to you as the only one that can fill us and empower us. The only one that can forgive us. The only one that can give us the peace and the joy and equip us to walk out our calling of love. And so we run to you and we fall into your arms of grace, into your arms of mercy. Hear our prayers. Fill us now that we, as a people, as your church, could have healthy relationships in our home, in this church, in the community, in the workplace, in the world. Give us health. Give us flourishing. Give us love, we ask in Jesus' name.